Well, it was a year ago tomorrow uh, that we gathered for worship for the last time on campus for several months as we responded to the pandemic. You know, we, we saw at the beginning of 2020 a great deal of momentum uh, in the life of our church. In fact, just a few weeks prior to that, we had 190 children on campus on a Sunday morning. And uh, we uh, are thankful for how God has been faithful in that time. And while I say this, I, I want to say this and approach it with caution and um, certainly uh, with sensitivity, but it seems in many ways uh, that, uh, and we, we recognize this through uh, what's being said uh, by the CDC and being said by our government, that things are beginning to roll back uh, to a new normal. And uh, just in the past few weeks, several weeks in a row, we've had over 150 children on campus on Sunday morning. So uh, with that happening, the growth that's happening, and, I, I, and many of the people who are a part of our church now are new to our church, I, I have two asks. Uh, one is a small one and one is a medium one. So the, the small one would be this. If you are part of our church pre-COVID, then you remember that we actually asked anyone who was healthy and didn't have a bunch of kids uh, to park in Freedom Field, to park across the street in, in one of the grass parking lots across the street and save those parking spaces up close uh, for our uh, young families and for our senior adults or those who might have uh, trouble making the walk. And so uh, I would ask that again, effective tomorrow. You won't be shamed today, but maybe next week. Uh, so uh, if you're healthy and you can make that walk, park farther away, if possible, please, to save those spaces uh, for uh, those families, our guests, and for uh, those who might have trouble walking. If you're not, you know, you're just kind of healthy, like you're healthy, but you're out of shape, you need to walk. So park uh, back there, I, I, like me. Um, and so that's my, my small ask. And then the medium one be, medium one would be, um, so we have a lot of kids coming on campus again, and um, we do need more children's ministry volunteers. And so if you're a parent, we ask that you serve at least once a month. If you have children, just be a participant in what we're doing. But we do need people to serve uh, more than that. I know my wife serves every week. We do need some people who would have that kind of commitment. Uh, if you would stop by the boat or email Lucas, he'd be happy to help you get plugged in. Um, in addition to the numbers of children growing, God, listen, listen to how God is at work. Uh, by the end of this year, it looks like that we will have at least seven licensed foster families in our church. Um, so that means uh, there are kids coming onto our campus from, uh, you know, different situations, different backgrounds. And so we don't just want to be like scrambling for volunteers when we have uh, that kind of opportunity uh, with us, you know, and, and, and that's just one way. And we have families in the process of adoption and in addition to those who are already doing all this. And, and, and that's just one way that God is really at work. And I'm just asking us as church to be all in uh, when it comes to, to the ministry that God has put before us. My my friend Jason, who was here with us last week, and some other friends who visit our church, and uh, even some of you who are new have said, and, and I don't want to over, I'm not very like, I don't want to say spiritual because as a pastor, I'm supposed to be spiritual, but I'm not very like, I feel like the Lord's doing this. I'm not that. Okay, that's not me. I'm not that guy. I'm like, I feel like the Lord's doing what he says in the scripture, so do it, obey, There's, there you go. But, but you sense God at work in the life of our church, and so Church, we have this opportunity to say, hey, we want to see a work done in and through us for his glory. And that takes as many of us as possible being all in. So let, let me pray for us and pray for our time in the word. God, 
Thank you for the opportunities you're giving us with children, with students, a growing student ministry, uh, to have conversations, to invest in, in their lives. Thank you for the people you're bringing on campus, but more than that, even thank you for the people you're giving us opportunity to interact with throughout the week. And Lord, I just pray that we would embrace the mentality that you have called us on this earth to live for your kingdom so that people would see you as their king. And so God... Stir our hearts to obedience, to service, to giving, to, to, to everything, Lord, that comes with that. And God, give us your grace because we're going to stumble, we're imperfect, and, and, and just be with us. And Lord, I just pray that you would do a work that you can't look and say, that's because of James or Justin or the leader. But God, that's because of Jesus that did the work in that church. So transform Niceville, transform our world through what you do here for your glory. And as we open your word, I pray the same thing. Transform our hearts so that we might be agents of transformation for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, you can open or turn to Romans 1. Uh, that's where we'll be today. Romans is uh, right after the four Gospels in the New Testament. Then you have Acts and Romans. And we're going to be in Romans 1. While you're turning there, I want to say if you're new here, we are so glad to have you with us. Or maybe you're watching online for the first time this morning. We are so glad to have you uh, joining us. And we would love to know who you are. I would like for you to text the word CONNECT to the number that is on the screen. And one of our staff members will follow up with you and we would love to get to know you and help you learn how you can be connected into the life of our church. Uh, we are on the home stretch of Live Scent, and as we wrap up, I essentially want to uh, use the last three weeks to do some housekeeping. I want to make sure we've covered and clarified three foundations to living scent. Next week, I want to talk about what it looks like to live scent, a model, if you will, for living scent, and, and ways that can apply in different stages of life that we might find ourselves in. Then we'll close the final week with the question, are we in this together and really ask, are we living for God and thus living on mission? And is that what unifies us as his people? But today, I think we need to answer the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? We throw that word around a lot. The gospel. We want, we want to preach the gospel. We want you to respond to the gospel. We want you to hear the gospel. But what does that really mean? And, and, and that, the gospel, really is the whole point of Live Sent. That's why we've taken three months as a church to talk about living on mission because of the gospel. But I think some people are unclear about what that means. And I think partly this lack of clarity is why people are not living sent. It was so great to have Jason Dukes with us last week. And if you didn't listen to that yet or watch that yet, I would encourage you to go back and do that. And he talked about how we as Christians aren't living for God. We're living with God. We're in this relationship with God. And we have invite people along in our lives to see that fleshed out and therefore to see the gospel fleshed out in our lives. And, and as we do that, we, we multiply. We see new believers. We see new disciple makers. We see new groups. We see more new churches. That's really what's been happening since the birth of the church, since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And I think when we think about living our lives this way, we realize in our context the need for gospel clarity. Because, and, and perhaps you've experienced this as well, 
is when we try to be people who live sent in Niceville, we encounter people who are pretty good people by their standards at least, but maybe even by our standards. I mean, we see a a healthier uh, view of marriage. We see a lot of people who, you know, are in our military and and have service as a part of who they are. They've they've probably made pretty good decisions in life. And so it can be kind of easy to say, do they, do I really need to invest in these people? Do I really need this urgency to, to live sent around these people? And some of them just really don't care. Like, they really don't care about heaven and hell. And, and, and they might call themselves believers and be a member of a church, but there doesn't seem to be this compelling nature to that. But what do I appeal to? Because everything's pretty good in their life. And that's why the need for understanding the gospel is so important. Now, at my previous church, when people would talk to guys who just didn't seem interested in God at all, they, they, a group of guys asked me, what do we do with them? And I said, Romans 1, bro. And so that became like a thing. We said, Romans 1, bro, because you, if you encounter someone who doesn't really see a need for God, I would encourage you to have them read Romans 1 and tell you what they think. And so that's where we're going to camp out today, and we're going to see five reasons we need to be gospel-centered. Let me begin reading in Romans chapter 1, verse 14. Paul says, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we'll circle back to Paul's desire here, but for right now, let's hone in on the what and the why of his message. The what is that he is eager to preach the gospel. He is not ashamed of the gospel. For the why is it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The first reason that we need to be gospel-centered is that the gospel is essential for people to be right with God. The gospel is essential for people to be right with God. If someone wants right standing, if someone wants right relationship, if someone wants to be good with God, then the gospel is essential. Without it, they are not good with God. The gospel is a Greek word, euangelion, which means good news. It's a message of good news. And the message of good news, the gospel, is certainly about Jesus. Starting the Sunday after Easter, we're going to be going through the gospel of Mark, the book of Mark. And it begins with, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. In Acts 2, when Peter is talking to uh, those who would listen in Jerusalem, he says, there is no other name by which you must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, when Paul's talking to his fellow workers, he says, we are co-laborers, co-workers, workers in the gospel of 
Jesus. The gospel is the message of Jesus, who he was, what he did, and what that means for us. Paul says the gospel is for the Jew first and then to the Greek. That is, the gospel came to the Jews first, but it's also for the Greeks. It's also for the Gentiles. It's also for everyone else, not just for one people group. Paul says, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. He means this is how you're made right, the gospel. And when he says from faith to faith, he's talking about the faith of Abraham to the faith of the early church. The gospel was how anybody could be made right with God. The Bible tells us that God counted it righteousness to Abraham. He says because of Abraham's faith in God, he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham knew that God could make him right with him. Abraham knew he could trust in God and God could count it to him as righteousness because he knew that Jesus was coming. Jesus was not plan B. He was plan A. Jesus, excuse me, God knew that was going to happen all along. And in the same way, that's what makes us righteous. That's what makes us right with God is the gospel. And so the righteous then live by faith. We are united to God, trusting God because he has made us right. When Paul says this, he's referring to what Habakkuk the prophet said in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 when it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. The context here is waiting on God in the midst of injustice, a lack of reward, not seeing God's promises fulfilled, and he said the righteous trust God. They know God makes them right with him, so they know they can trust God in these Situations. That's the characteristics of those who have faith in God. And Paul is using this verse to say to the Romans, Gentiles or Jews can be saved if they unite themselves to God and trust in him. And then he begins to expound upon the pride that Habakkuk described several hundred years before when he says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him. Look at what Paul goes on to say. I'm, he says, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And then he says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, right, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul says, everyone knows or it's been made plain to them that they are under the wrath of God, the judgment and the punishment of God for unrighteousness. Paul will later say that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What Paul is saying is that there's this innate obviousness to the fallen nature of this world And this longing for that to be restored and redeemed. And he says, so those who are unrighteous see the wrath of God on them. And these are people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They do not simply ignore the truth. They suppress the truth. Now, we do not like to think of ourselves as suppressors of truth. In fact, the name we give ourselves, homo sapiens, means the wise thinking creature. 
Humans rightly view ourselves as set apart from the rest of creation because of our intellectual capacity. But we also see ourselves as fair-minded people who think rightly. Not only do we think that we think intelligently, but we think that we think rightly. And so what we tend to do is we tend to associate with people who think like us because nothing reinforces the way that we think as much as being with people who validate how we think and think just like us. And in this, in our unrighteousness, we actually suppress what is actually true. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says, we do not suppress the truth simply because we do not want to deal with it. Instead, we work out the truth suppression conspiracy in a great cloud of unrighteousness. What Dr. Moeller is saying is not only do we not want to deal with the truth, but we, we can't avoid the issue of truth, so we begin to create worldviews, religions, that kind of suppress the truth, diminish the truth, and make us feel justified in who we are without really addressing the issues of the truth. What Paul says, verse 19, is this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What Paul is saying is that God is obvious to everyone who's ever walked the face of this earth. He has shown it to us through creation, through what is inside of us. And so you can look and see the eternal power of God in creation, and it draws you to the divine nature of God, to his holiness, to the fact that he is set apart. And so what Paul says is, so anyone who's not living for him is without excuse, because God has made it obvious to them that they should be seeking him. What Paul said at the beginning of this is, the wrath of God is revealed against that. Despite all of the rationalizations, theorizing, self-justification, religion that derive from truth suppression, human beings remain accountable to God for their sin. And so we need to be gospel-centered because the gospel recovers the truth about God. We have suppressed the truth about God. And the second reason we need to be gospel-centered is because the gospel recovers the truth about God. Man's heart is suppressing that, and the gospel pulls out that truth. Paul goes on in verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God has made it clear to them. They suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And he goes a step further to say they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
The Psalms demonstrate that the right response to God, to creation, to our existence, and our experience is thanksgiving. John Piper says, proud people hate the lesson of creation. The reason the human heart hates the truth that creation teaches is because it's too humbling. From sea to shining sea, the creation shouts that God has eternal power. God is the infinitely marvelous being. God is the maker of all that is, and we are utterly dependent on his absolute free choices to create and sustain our life or not. And we should therefore glorify him and not ourselves and give thanks to him and not take credit for ourselves. Pride hates that. And Paul says, in pride, we become futile in our thinking. That means we become empty in our thinking. Our thinking is meaningless. To live apart from God is really empty. It's really meaningless. It might touch on the glimpses of value and worth, but there's an emptiness. Paul says people who are living like that are not thinking about these things. He said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, I think as the church, we often try to say to people, you should live like this. But if they're not living for God, that doesn't make full sense to them. They're not thinking that. They're not pursuing that thing. Why would you deny yourself and your wants and your desires if you're not living for God? Paul said their foolish hearts were, were darkened. It's interesting that when a society moves past religion, we think we're enlightened. But what the scripture is saying is that actually we're becoming darkened. He said they claim to be wise, but they've become fools. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We see this in idolatry, which has existed throughout history. But I think in our society, we look at those societies and say how primitive they are. But I mean, look at all the, embol- the symbolism and, 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 you know, all these things, even in nationalism, in our capitals. We have all these, we have birds and eagles and tigers and, and, and Roman goddesses and all these things that represent liberty and things like that. We say the fact that they would deify man in, in, in certain societies where people became gods, kings became gods, but yet we have celebrity worship today where we live and breathe on trying to maybe get a glimpse and taste of what it might be like to be some of these people. Mysticism certainly has run rampant where people say, well, that was the plan of the universe or the universe is going to get me. And we wake up in the morning to look at horoscopes to see what our day may look like. We are certainly religious people even though we do not acknowledge God. And we want to be justified in our unrighteousness. And that's what's happening. And Paul says, verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This text says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to the dishonoring of their bodies. 
God-enabled, perhaps definitely allowed the perversion to take place. Therefore, which means the reason God allowed this is what was said before, that he was made known to them plainly, and in unrighteousness they suppressed the truth instead of giving thanks and began to come up with their own systems of justification of our life lived apart from God because we exchanged the truth about a creator for a lie and served the created. And we need the gospel because the gospel shows us this. The gospel shows us how we have deceived ourselves. If we're living for the things of this earth and somebody proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel shows us how we have deceived ourselves. That's the third reason we need to be gospel-centered. Paul goes on in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Mid committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Again, Paul continues in what he's saying here, and he says that people have these dishonorable passions. When you see that word honorable used in the Bible, almost every time it, it, it's referring to this imagery of um, what you would use to serve people at your house, utensils and plateware and those kind of things. And, and typically a person would have common use and then they would have, you know, the kind of fancy one, the one that's set apart. Uh, and uh, poor people didn't really have that. But, and, and they would understand, you know, there's this set apartness to the life of a person who follows God, this life of a person who is a Christian in the New Testament. And he's saying, but they're not set apart. They don't see their lives as set apart to be used for God to honor God. And he says that women begin to have unnatural relationships with women and men begin to have unnatural relationships with men. And, you know, we think about that, which is certainly we live in this place where there is a sexual revolution in our culture, if you will, um, where we begin to, you know, lose the, the definitions that uh, history typically has used for gender and, and for sexuality and all those things. And what happens is we're suppressing the truth and we not only move away from God, but we move away from science. We move away from nature. And, and this isn't new. We like to think of it as new and how progressive we are, but it's been happening for thousands of years. It's a sign of any society that moves away from God, that says we don't need God and we want to follow our hearts. And Paul says they receive in themselves the due penalty. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death, and so there are earthly consequences, but more importantly, there are eternal consequences. And, and listen, we think as a society, we evolve or we progress, but really, what really happens is societies begin to ruin. They begin to fall when they move in this direction. And not only does the Bible tell us that, but history tells us that. Bible and history tell us that when we begin to, as a people, do what's right in our own eyes, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. And we see that taking part in, in our culture today. And Paul goes on to say uh, of this context, they were filled, verse 29, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, 
covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who who practice them. Paul lists, not comprehensively, the fruits, the results of unrighteousness, of God allowing people to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and to live for our minds and what they want. And verse 32 says, not only do people do these things, even though they know they are wrong, C.S. Lewis said there are two things that every human being knows. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of that idea. And the second thing all human beings know is that, in fact, they do not behave in that way. They know the law of nature and that they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. And yet, what happens when a society begins to shift in a a godless direction is we begin to lose sight of that foundation and we begin to justify every action. And we certainly see that as a thread in our culture today. And look, if if you're here and you disagree with me about these things, you know, I would say to you, if you're not a Christ follower, like I want to have more conversations with you that about that with you first. I'm not trying to get you to change your mind. So, so that's my appeal to you. Um, I want you to see who Jesus is and then we'll talk about the implications on your life. But if you're here and you don't think that there is this thread, this message of let's approve what people want to do so we're justified in what we do, you're wrong. It's a philosophy. It's not, a, it's not an inactive philosophy, a passive philosophy. philosophy. It's an active philosophy. A few months ago, my family and I watched the Disney movie, one of the newer Disney movies, Godmother. And the premise of Godmother, if you haven't seen it, is about um, a fairy godmother who, I guess fairy godmother Ing doesn't really work anymore. And she really wants to go and try to earn something, her wings. I can't remember anyway. And so she goes and she's trying to help this girl find love and um, it actually turns out that you don't find love the way the book says anymore you find love in a different way and you know when you think about fairy tales and you know Disney classics like I'm, I'm not necessarily like yeah they were all great you know but, but I knew what was coming and at the end of the movie there's a scene where they're kind of celebrating hey you know fairy godmothering doesn't have to be the same anymore because we don't have to go by the book anymore and love isn't the same anymore because for her love what was your love and it's her and her children and then it's this person and their family and then it's these two men and their adopted baby and that's love and keep going on and I said to my wife I said that was the whole point of this movie the whole point of this movie was to say the book doesn't define love We can't look to anything besides what's in our hearts to define love. And that is where our culture is. And certainly there's not just one issue with that. There are many issues with that. But what what has happened is we're saying we want to pursue our flesh, what we want, and we want to prove everyone else doing that. And we need to be gospel-centered because the gospel warns us of death. The gospel warns us of death if we indeed are living our lives apart from God, if we indeed are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, if God has given us over to a debased mind, the gospel warns us of death. 
I never really realized this, and it's not that impactful. It's pretty simple until I read Jason Duke's book, and he talked about, and we have an image to show this, how the word live and the word evil are really the opposite of each other. And so God is calling us to live for him. He's calling us to experience life. And if we're living apart from him, then it's really evil. It's really evil. And we don't get to experience the life that God wants us to live. Now, when we look at somebody's life on earth, we tend to think, well, okay, so they deserve death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, like eternity death because of how they've lived their life on this earth. But you have to understand that eternity isn't about the 40, 50, 70 years we live on this earth. It's about an identity being built apart from God going on forever. Because if we continued to live apart from God forever, we would become very wicked by any standards, people, and God sees that, and that's what eternity is about. And that's where we're at. That's where we live. That's where we've always lived. And I want to go back to what Paul said at the beginning of this section in Romans. He said, verse 14, chapter 1, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. To be ashamed means you're not living how you want to live because of how living how you want to live is felt, is treated. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. Now, to be unashamed typically means to prove ourselves. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is saying, regardless of the consequences, my goal is not to gain power for myself, but my understanding is that the gospel is the power of God. The gospel was foolishness to the Gentiles. Why do we need this? It was a stumbling block to the Jews. You're telling me we're made righteous by a man who died on a cross who was from Nazareth? But Paul was not ashamed. He saw the power of the gospel because he saw the power of the gospel in himself. He had experienced the power of the gospel. And that's his appeal to the Christians in Corinth when he talks about how the world is around them. And he says, and such were some of you, but you have been transformed. So we look at our culture and we see people who are indifferent towards God, who, who are living their lives apart from God. And we should be, as Paul was, eager to preach the gospel to them. Notice that Paul was not criticizing the culture. He was stating it plainly. 
and he was engaging the culture. He says, this is how things are in Rome, so I am eager to preach the gospel to Rome. I'm not going to sit here and criticize Rome and talk about all the ways they're wrong because we know they're wrong because they're not living for God. They need the gospel message. When Paul walks into Athens, a place that is very religious but doesn't live for God, where he certainly saw a lot of pagan idolatry and perversion, it says in the text in Acts 17 that his spirit was provoked. Paul was not offended by this. His spirit was provoked, proclaimed the good news. This is what living sin is. This is what we are called to do is to proclaim the good news because we know the answer to all these things that people are trying to find and the justification that people are trying to get because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. I want you to think about it this way. Friday, I called a member of our church who's Don Tipton. If you've been here for a long time, you might know him, but his daughter, he's, he's an older man. His daughter has two children in high school and college, and she's been struggling with cancer, and she got the news this week that it doesn't look good. And I heard this man weeping over his daughter. And in that moment, I mean, tears welled up in my eyes hearing this dad cry over his daughter, and I just was thinking, I wish there was something I could do. I mean, I could pray for them, and, and as a church family, we'll rally around them however we can. I know friends down there, but I can't cure her. If I knew the cure, I would tell them. If I knew the cure, if you knew the cure to cancer, I think you would tell everybody. And I don't think you would sit around and think, oh, I really don't want to do that. I feel uncomfortable doing that. I have to tell somebody how it has to happen in order to do it. I don't think we would operate like that. And not to make light of, of the, the reality of cancer in any way, but as believers, we understand the cure to sin. We understand the hope that we can have even though we are sinners and what it means to have eternal life. And yet, we suppress the truth perhaps of that message that we're supposed to be carrying. And we need to be gospel centered because the gospel still has the power to save. The gospel still has the power to save. In Romans 6, verse 23, which I referenced earlier, it says, the wages of sin is death. And so all of this that we've talked about and how people are ignoring God and living for themselves, the wages of sin is death. But that text also tells us the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. People need to hear this and listen to me. They don't need an intellectual argument. They don't need a political argument. We don't need people to join our side. We don't even need people to come to this building and sit with us in this service and validate us and make us feel affirmed because there's more people gathering together with us. We need people to hear the message that they were created for of Jesus Christ because we are living with, we are working with, we are playing with, we are working out with, we are walking by, we are shopping with people who don't know the worth that they were created to have. The gospel is a power of God for salvation. It's what gives us our identity. It's what fills us up from being empty. It's what shows us our worth. Every year at Christmas time, I walk into secular 
restaurants and secular businesses. I see people flood into church services to sing, Oh Holy Night, because there's something about that that resonates with them. The words of that song say, Long lay the world and sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. You realize for me, I don't know that I could have ever persevered as a husband if it wasn't for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know if I'd ever look at my children the way I look at them and love them and see God's grace on my life if it wasn't for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are men in your community who what they need to hear so that they aren't trying to live through their children and they aren't trying to be too hard on them and they aren't negated, uh, excuse me, absent and they aren't trying to build their identity on how many zeros in their bank account is they need to hear that they're a son of God. And that will begin to change everything about their life. There are women who are looking to be approved themselves and always feeling insecure about who they are as a mom as they look at the social media and they need to hear that they are created to be a daughter of God. We are walking with, working with, living by, shopping with people who need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. They don't need to hear us criticize their lifestyle choices. They don't need to hear us tell them about who we think should be president or how the economy should be. They need to hear that they were created by God, that they are sinners separated from God by their own doing, and that God came to them to save them. And the power of the gospel is still alive today. So live your life with purpose. Live your life with intent. Press in into relationships with people. Invite them into your life. Invite them into your homes. Invite them into the things that you do because the gospel can save them. Church, preach the gospel. Preach the word. Live it. Don't bring them to hear me. You go and preach the gospel.